Hi, this is Tim Hange with Calvary Conversations coming to you from Calvary University in Kansas City, Missouri. It is my honor today to have with me our guest, Norm Baker. Norm is a longtime favorite professor at Calvary University. Uh, probably the most important thing about you, Norm, at least as far as your achievements in life, is that you have been married for 50 years as of this coming September uh, to Mary Alice Baker. Uh, he spent 16 years in ministry with Avant, uh, church planning, and also being an instructor at a Bible college in Mali, West Africa. He has pastored uh, two churches uh, for a total of 14 years in the pastorate. Uh, he's uh, achieved a Bible certificate from a Bible and mission certificate from Frontier School of the Bible, a bachelor's degree from Calvary University, an MDiv from Trinity, and a THM from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, I, I on your uh, hobbies list, Norm. I didn't know some things about you that you enjoy painting. Didn't know that. Uh, studying languages. That I knew. The studying languages, golf, and time with grandkids. So. Um, Norm, it is a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks. Good to be with you, too. Well, um, you know, your time in missions, obviously, is very interesting. Mali, Africa, sounds like a fascinating place. And uh, as I understand the progression of your journey, that's something you went to, you and your wife went to right after you completed your, your uh, first um, Bible certificate at mm -hmm. Frontier, correct? Yes. Okay, so t tell me about that. What was it like being a, a, a young missionary in, in, in West Africa? Well, um, we, we arrived in the field very young, um, younger than most anybody had been up to that point for Mali. Um, I think I was, well, we did a year and a half in Switzerland studying French. Mm -hmm. So I was like 23 when we arrived in Mali for okay. our first term. And in those days, it was a four-year term with a year of furlough or home assignment. And uh, so we were, we were young. We had no children, newly married. Um, we got married in September, started deputation, uh, raising support in October. Our support came in by February. We left in May of 72 to go study French. And then in July 4th, July 4th, 1973, we landed in Mali. Wow. Wow. That had to be exciting. That was a very different time with, uh, uh, you know, not as much technology and uh, communication uh, connection in terms of communication as we have today. So nice. I'm sure that was a quite an adventure. Um, tell me about uh, learning and learning a language to go to the field. It's interesting that uh, they put you in a year and a half of language study before entering that field. Uh, French, I guess, primarily spoken in Mali. Yes, um, French is the national language. Bambar, Bambar is the trade language. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. I noticed that you you began both church planning and uh, doing uh, doing Bible college uh, teaching. Which which came first? Was it the church, the church planning work? Church planning came first. Okay. Okay. Um, and the language the language part is pretty interesting. If you don't mind me, doing please elaborate. Part. Yeah. When I was when I was in ninth grade, I took Latin because I wanted to be a doctor. That's where God changed that call, and so I was studying Latin to be, become a doctor. And my Latin teacher flunked me out at the semester break, and said that uh, she said Norman, she said I'm flunking out of Latin. You're going to send you over to the speech and drama 
class. And, uh, and she said, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I'm going to be a missionary. She goes, you have no aptitude for language. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's now linguistics is my field and we study language aptitude and it isn't what a lot of people think it is just because you don't have just because you are not drawn into uh the study of the technical aspects of say the grammar of language Mm -hmm. does not mean that you don't have an aptitude to learn how to communicate in another language yeah and latin is a dead language who speaks it nobody speaks latin Right. But everybody speaks French or Bambara or German or Italian or, you know, so there's all kinds of live languages to study, which is what I spend my time doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm working on Latin again, and I'm working on Greek and Hebrew, but, you know. As far as spoken, like. spoken languages, was French the only one that you uh, learned? No, we had to learn Bambara. Once you once got back down to Mali, the first year, year and a half in Mali was studying the Bambara language. So three years straight of language study. So you you became fluent in two additional languages, spoken yes. fluent in two additional yes. languages. Uh, still fluent up to today. What does that one mean? <laughs> still fluent even to today. Oh, sorry, you're still, still fluent French even to today. Yeah, gotcha. still speak French. Okay. Sorry, it glitched a little bit. I thought you were giving me a sample there for a moment. Oh, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Very good. Um, yeah. Now, tell me about the importance of that in terms of, of, of missions. Um, because I think that's something that a lot of people don't take into account today. And, and even some people going to European countries where they say, well, you know, English is a lingua franca and, you know, I should be able to get around on that or that kind of thing. Um, um, you know, tell me a little bit about the importance of learning a language on the field like that. Well, there's something about speaking the mother tongue of the people you're ministering to. Mm-hmm. It's just something about it. Um, it tells the tells the national that you're, you're, you care about his culture because as you learn the language, you're also learning the culture. So it shows him that you care enough to spend the time, the blood, sweat, and tears to learn his language or her language and, and to communicate to them in, in, on their level and their language. Right. And one of the things that's changed a lot is that a lot of people speak English now. We went, we went back to Mali in 2003 to visit. Everybody knows English now. Everybody speaks English. So a lot of the Malians that we spoke Bambara with for years were talking to us in English. It's like, can you speak? I want to speak Bambara. <laughs> I don't want to speak English. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think that's what you brought out is so key that, a culture, it shapes the language, and the language also shapes the culture. There is this mm-hmm. sort of uh, circular relationship there. Yeah. But when you learn a language, you do learn the mentality of a people group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we discovered this when you know we were in Russia as well. Becoming fluent in Russian really gave me a great picture of the of mm-hmm. the of the culture, and and a connection with people that I wouldn't have had. Uh, had I just relied on English, so um, and it even alerts you to the history of the culture as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Mali history just in studying the language and talking to people, and it all depends too on on what kind of a learner you are. I'm an auditory learner, so I didn't worry about so much the grammar and the writing in class. I did all those assignments, but I spent my time on the street talking to people. Yeah, and if you yeah. find the right group of people that will correct you. 
And I found French people who do that a lot because in Switzerland, they think they have to open up French. <laughs> yeah. In Switzerland, yeah. Has so, um, and then especially in Mali, um, they loved it. Uh, on a number of occasions, I got into situations where being able to speak to them in their own language helped us through, especially at a police stop. And they start they start talking to you in French because you're a white man, but then you start talking to them in Bombardier, they go, Oh, you speak my language. Yep. They yep. change the whole attitude, the whole atmosphere changes just that quick. Yep. Yeah. It it does make a huge difference to people. Um, even if they do know another, you know, lingua franca for the region, which I guess it switched from French to English in your lifetime, it sounds like. But um, um, yeah, it does it does really help to have that heart connection with people mm -hmm. um you know th there is so much that i uh, i'm sure you could uh tell about your uh time in mali and we're excited to know that there's a book coming out through calvary press uh that you're you've authored a book that uh that we'll be seeing soon through calvary press that that details primarily your your journey your ministry mm -hmm. journey in mali right it covers our 16 years in mali and also covers our our trip that we made out in 2003 to revisit okay and that was kind of our closure trip and then also covers an instance where i was here at home and a young man came from molly who needed surgery at ku med center and i was i was called in to be one of the translators wow okay and, and so i had to sit in the room with him eight hours a day while the doctors came in and asked questions or, or, and i had to translate the questions to the to the patient and the patient back to the doctors etc so yeah wow yeah <laughs> uh that that's another that's a book. pretty important thing to be translating i mean <laughs> that's, a, that's another book for another time yes wow but um i i you know 25 minutes is not going to be enough i think to encapsulate everything but we sure would love to hear uh some of the key things the key maybe events lessons learned from your time in, in Mali, what were some of the biggest, let me start with this. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? The biggest challenge of course was health. Okay. We were living in a third world country at that time, I don't know what to say, but at that time it was the fifth poorest country in the world. Um, every disease imaginable was there. Snakes galore, you know, so it just, uh, it was just God protecting us all the time, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So, I used to tell people that there's only two kinds of snakes in Mali. One, they either bite you and poison you, or they, or they eat you. One of the two. Wow. A lot of, a lot of pythons. Wow. And um, also vipers. So, how did you, like, what did you have to, what did you do to take measures against snakes? Well, for one thing, we didn't have any grass in our yards. There's no grass. It was all gravel. That keeps the okay. snakes down. You can see them more easily. They're not hiding in the grass. Um, we kept a cat on the yard, and sometimes ducks. Ducks and cats will put up a real big fit when a snake's around. Gotcha. So I had a cat save my life once. Right, just when the snake was coming at me, I was under my car, working on my car, and the snake was going right towards me. And the cat, the cat intervened. Wow. So, Wow, that's that's definitely the Lord's uh, the Lord's uh, intervention there. That is actually something else that you and I have in common. Uh, my cat delayed me out the door by five minutes 
uh, one time in in um, in Moscow by by hiding. He was playing with something and hit it, and I had to look for it. And I was five minutes late out the door, which was exactly the length of time uh, that it took between where I was and to where a bomb exploded in front of me on on oh, the metro goodness. that day. So. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> We've wow. both been protected by God's sovereignty through the means of a cat. <laughs> so wow. um, what about the ministry challenges, uh, the people challenges? Um, the Mali people are very jovial, very loving people. Um, we found them to be very patient. Um, and their, their attitude was, well, he's a foreigner. He doesn't know. Um, mm. So we got a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness that way um great people to work with because they appreciate anything you do for them right so, and i did a lot of my first year on the field after we finished the language study i spent a lot of time doing reading classes with a literacy rate of 85 percent in that country it's very important to start people on reading all yes. of our all of our learning to read materials were designed in over through bible stories Okay. Wow. Doing the reading, so so a lot of that was important. So yeah, um, we found we found the Malians to be a very enjoyable people to work with. Did the, has the literacy rate increased significantly since that time? Do you know? It has some. I'm not sure what that figure would be now, but I'm sure it's above 85 percent. Yeah, yeah. They had had a 50 percent literacy rate at the time. 85 percent was illiterate. So yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. That is a real lesson of missions, uh, the humility of being a foreigner and knowing that sometimes you will get treated differently because you're a foreigner. And sometimes it's a double standard and it's not fair. You know, people assume, well, he doesn't know or he, you know, he's not one of us. He doesn't, you know, and and um, and so you do you do every once in a while feel as nice as people try to be. You do sometimes feel like the outsider and um and and there's some real humility in just accepting that and still continuing, you know, pushing in on relationships gently and and. Um, but a caveat to that was, the Bambara culture is very Eastern set culture, so so caring for, and being patient with a foreigner is catamount in their minds. Ah. Uh, so. So there were times like, like I'd go into a, like a hardware store and there'd be people lined up waiting in line to be helped. I'd get at the back of the line. And the guy at the front would go, come on up here, come on up here. Go, no, no, I'm in line here with everybody else. I'm queuing up and, you know, I'm here. No, no, come on up. And they'd insist on it. And everybody in line would go, yeah, yeah go up here, go up here. Let them help you. Let them help you. <laughs> so in some ways it's like an opposite bias, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how did you find their uh, receptiveness to the gospel, and how did you find inroads in terms of uh, making the gospel uh, understandable, uh, especially across you know cultural lines? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the first thing we did was look for cultural analogies, and we found some there. Um, uh, by and large, the the sub-Saharan Islam. It's not as fanatic as you find in North Africa or the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So we could always gather a crowd to do open air film showings. We did 35 millimeters and we did 60 millimeter film showings. Always find a good crowd for those. Lots of people will come and listen. Very difficult for them to accept the this, this salvation message and accept Christ because that means turning your back on your father and your ancestry 
and Islam, and that's very difficult for them to do. And when when someone in the family decides to become a Christian, the rest of the family starts putting pressure on them. If you're a young man, it's a married. First thing your father says is, "Well, I'm not going to find your wife unless you leave the Christian road and come back to the Muslim road." Um. We had one gentleman. Interesting story. We had one gentleman who lived in a village. It was all Muslim. He was the only village, and his son was not a Christian. And he had a dilemma. He said, I, I, my Muslim leaders are telling me they're not going to give any of their daughters to my son for wife unless we go back to Islam. He said, I can't ask my Christian brothers to give me their, their daughters as a wife because he's not, he's not a Christian. Mm. So what do I do? It was a dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. How did that one get resolved out of curiosity? Well, eventually they, the Muslims uh, put the pressure on him and he said, he wrote a letter to us and said, don't come visit me anymore. I'm no longer on the road. Yeah, I'm going back to Islam. Just so I can get a wife for my son. I'm glad you bring. I'm glad you bring this up, Norm, because uh, one of the great pains on the mission field that you you don't really think about. I think a lot of young missionaries they go out on the field and they sort of maybe expect in their heart somewhere, even if they've tempered it in their mind in their heart somewhere, they expect you know some really you know. a lot of joyous conversion stories of, of you know people coming to Christ through their through their through their work, et cetera. But one of the things they don't necessarily expect, and I had not planned for this interview to take this direction, but I am I you know I, I just appreciate the honesty of you sharing that story. One of the things they often don't expect is the pain of what happens when people reject or when people first accept and then turn away. Um, how, how did you deal with those kind of dis- disappointments on, on the field? Well, the first thing we often did was let them know that you, you may be leaving the road, um, but you're not leaving our hearts. Mm-hmm. We still love you. We still consider you a brother. And even if you decide to go back to Islam, and I told one guy, I said, here's the deal. I said, you may be leaving the road, but God isn't leaving you. Yeah. If yeah. you're a genuine believer, God is not leaving you. Yeah. Well, that's and that's a great way to leave that with him. And I, um, you know, who knows how the Lord will use that in his life, or or has mm-hmm. used that in his life. Well, we we really look forward to seeing the book coming out through through CU Press. Um, I am I am curious. I want to move on in the, in the time that we have to your time coming home and then uh, in in the pastorate here. Um, you know, it was a real adjustment for me coming back from the mission field after only eight years. Uh, you were gone twice as long as I was on, on the field. How was that adjustment coming back to the United States? Well, of course, there was the normal reverse culture shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything moves so quickly here in America. Um, so when we came back, it was, it was we came back and, and, and weren't planning on staying. So we packed everything up in Mali as if we were coming back. We got here and a year into our into our furlough, um, we discovered that one of our kids had had some learning problems and you couldn't get special ed at the mission, missionary boarding school at Ivory Coast. So we opted to stay home. Um, we faced some criticism over that one. Um, yeah. But my, my philosophy was, if I don't give my children what they need now to prepare them for their lives ahead, then it's kind of like the cobbler's children who have no shoes. Right. Right. Uh, you know, we actually came back for uh, some similar reasons. And 
I always tell people that our ministry in missions, our ministry, our child, our ministry to our children sits within our ministry of it to the kingdom of heaven. It is not in opposition to it. It sits within it. And that's that's great to see that you honored th that ministry to your family in that way, because I'm sure that was a difficult adjustment to go through. Um, because the reality is ministry is, is a lot of a lot of the that's what I'm looking for. Ministry is about location. Mm -hmm. So if you don't act like a missionary here, just because you cross the ocean, isn't going to make you a missionary there. A lot of right. people think that well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a missionary when I get over there. No, you need to be a missionary now. You need to have that mindset now of ministering to people, reaching out, caring. Yep. Teaching. Yep. Yep. That's great. And you know, one of my questions here is any general advice to a young person starting out who's uh you know, in their education, who's interested in missions, but I think you may have just given that. But uh, any any others, uh, any other pieces of advice on that? Make you make sure you stay uh, adamantly involved with your church. Mm. Be involved in ministry in the church, no matter yeah. where you think, no matter how short your time is. Be involved in the church. Yep. Yep. Um, making the church a priority, yeah, that's 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 huge. Um, that's another one of those things. If you don't do it here, you won't do it there. You transition into a pastoral role here in the states. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I'll be honest with you, uh, it wasn't what I expected. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I thought we would step into a situation where people would respect us because of what we've, what we've been and what we've done. <laughs> I, I, had, I had one one person tell me, we're tired of hearing stories about Molly. And I had another deacon tell me, but that's who you are. You teach out of who you are. And I said, you're absolutely right. That's why I'm going to continue giving the stories from Molly. Right. Right. Sharing stories of God's faithfulness, you know. I wonder if Paul drove people nuts with his uh you know, in 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 Corinth this happened and in <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh I'm sure he shared from his from his uh storehouse uh of, of experience too. Um back to the back to the location thing, ministering here wasn't different than ministering in Mali. I was in a pastor role there too, although my job in Mali in that day and age was to was to be a help to make the pastor successful. So I was right. I was kind of the I call it indirect leadership. I was behind him, giving him ideas, letting him think that the ideas are his, and then he, he moving on that. So that's kind of the way we operated. Um, here in the states, I operated the same way. So again, it was a change of location, but not a change of philosophy of ministry. Right. Right. Did your cross-cultural savvy come into play uh, when you were uh, pastoring here in the States? Yes, I discovered that being a missionary on the field and learning two other cultures, as we did, uh, taught me how to read people mm -hmm. and understand people. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, I, also, I used to tell people that one of, some of the best training I ever had for being a pastor was going to the mission field. Was uh, sorry, I missed that. Some of the best, some of the best training I ever had for becoming a pastor was from the mission field. From the mission field, gotcha. Okay, sorry, glitched again a little bit on me there. So okay. yeah, yeah, and I, I highly advise that even to um, you know young people at, at Calvary or anywhere else, 
taking a, a year or two overseas teaching in a Christian school or or serving with some ministry where you are having to actively live in another culture radically uh, if if you're open if you're open to it if you allow it to work what mm-hmm. God wants it to work in your life will radically uh, increase your ability to understand yes, other people's perspectives to to put yourself in their shoes in their position uh so yeah that's that's really great uh we're almost out of time but i do want to ask about calvary university so what led you to teach at calvary well i when i did the year of, of mission residency i was 80, 86 and 87 um i i was considered a credible teacher mm-hmm. so tom, dr tom monine said to me why don't you go to dallas get your degree and come back here and teach full-time I said, sure. So that's why I went to Dallas, was to do that. But when I was finishing up at Dallas, I was told that the current president at that time, and I won't name who that was, but the current president didn't want any more Dallas graduates up there as teachers. Ah. So I took the pastorate, and lo and behold, the pastorate was in was in uh, Overland Park, and I was pastoring there, and, and one of my friends, Stan Dirksen, was a registrar at the time, and he said, why don't you come on over and teach? I said, okay, I'd love to. So I started teaching two two classes a week as adjunct. Uh, that was in 2001, and mm-hmm. I did that until the end of 2005. And then uh, I took a couple years off working through a ministry change, structural change in my church, and came back in 2012 and finished in 2019. So I have 13 years altogether teaching in Calvary. Well, I will tell you that when you retired from Calvary, the students deeply missed you. We all deeply missed you. And even at a personal level, Norman, I, I say this from my heart, uh, having come to Calvary right off the field and having a smile on my face, but sometimes being very unsettled for having to make this cultural shift, uh, you basically honed right in on that. And you walked up to me and 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 uh, you're just a very open and real person. And that's, I think, one of your, your, your great, you're open, you're real, you're perceptive. And that's just that, that you ministered to me in that way um, in that time. And I'm deeply grateful for it. And I am so looking forward to reading uh, the, the book that you are getting ready to share with us, because I just think, uh, I think there's, we, we're just scratching the surface of what we have to learn from, uh, you know, from the life of, of, of uh, from your life in ministry here, so I appreciate your kind comments. I I miss the students and I miss the faculty a lot. Um, yeah, I, I told Dr. Bonine, not Dr. Bonine, I said Dr. Bittner before I left that that, that Calvary was one of the best places I ever served. I'm, was, I'm glad to hear it. It was a family that operated like a family. I enjoyed the students. I loved the students, and the book is coming out hopefully soon. Um, we finished the editorial meetings that we're going to lay out soon. Dr. Dodds is working with me as my editor, and uh, he was hoping by the end of August. We don't know yet. So. Okay. okay. That, it, that it will be printed. Is it going to be available in print form or, e- or ebook form or both? I think both. Both? Okay. And do you have any both. information yet about where we can get um, where we can get the book itself? It'll be, uh, it'll be on Amazon.com. Okay. It will be on Amazon. And the title, of the, the title of the book is Strangers in the Land of the Hippo. That's cool. Strangers All right. Hippo is, Molly is the word for hippo in Bavara. Wow. And the whole, the whole the people group is named Molly, or the whole, the whole country is named Molly. Uh, hippo okay. Is, the, hippo is their, the hippo is their mascot, like we have the eagle. 
they had the hippo. The hippo was ferociously protective of its young. So mm-hmm. That was considered. So the country is named after the animal that fiercely protects its young. Wonderful, wonderful. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll be able to find that on Amazon. Dr. Dobbs is talking maybe the end of August. We don't know for sure because once we get it all together, get the layout done, get it all together, and send it to Amazon, I don't know how long it takes from that point then to go ahead and get it out there. And okay. Because they publish on demand is what they do. Okay. Well, we'll definitely be looking for it. Maybe we can, well, with CU Press, I'm sure there'll be a release on the website as well. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Norm, and thank you all for listening and uh, spending your time uh, investing in this important conversation. Thanks again, Norm. Have a great day. Thanks, Tim. Good being with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Calvary Conversations, a service of Calvary University in Kansas City, Missouri. We invite you to participate in the conversation by contacting us through the Calvary University website, calvary.edu, or by calling us at 816-322-0110. Join us again next week for another Calvary Conversation.